Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to Canada ehx.com and clicking donate don't forget i have two other podcasts out there pucks and cups and from john to justin which release every single week called one of the greatest indigenous activists of the first half of the 20th century the name fred loft is not known as well as others in canadian history despite this he is still impacting canadian and indigenous life to this very day today I am looking at the life of this fascinating man. Frederick Loft was born on a Deo, which means beautiful mountain, in Mohawk, on February 3, 1861, at the Six Nations of the Grand River. His parents spoke fluent English and Mohawk, and they encouraged him to pursue an education at a very early age. Loft's mother, Ellen Smith, was the granddaughter of Onida Joseph, who had fought with Joseph Brandt in the American Revolutionary War. His family was at the higher level of the Christian Iroquois society and would often have guests over including the prominent ethnographer, Lewis Henry Morgan. Loft would attend an indigenous elementary school until he was 12 and then he was sent to a residential school called the Mohawk Institute in Brantford, Ontario. The experience at this school was not good, and he would often relate how he hated his time at the school, saying, quote, In winter, the rooms and bed were so cold that it took half the night before I got warm enough to fall asleep. End quote. After one year, Loft was able to leave the school. His parents supported him in his desire for freedom, and they were able to bring him home. He would then attend a public school in Caledonia, which required him to walk 13 kilometers every single day. The next year, he moved into the community working for room and board so he didn't have to travel so far. And while Loft would face racism in the community, he didn't let any of it deter him from his goals. After completing high school in 1881, Loft worked various jobs as a lumberjack and eventually a timber inspector. Around 1885, he was able to receive a scholarship to study bookkeeping at the Ontario Business College in Belleville, Ontario. Throughout his early life, his parents gave him constant encouragement, which gave him a great deal of confidence. This allowed him to often brush aside the negative encounters with discrimination and stay focused on what he wanted to accomplish in his life. With no luck finding work using his bookkeeping skills, he spent six months as a reporter in Brantford, covering the 1887 federal election for the paper. At the time, all Eastern Canadian Indigenous males who met property qualifications could vote, but that would be withdrawn in 1898. Throughout his life, Loft was a devoted Liberal. After his time at the newspaper, he spent two years working as a lumber inspector near Buffalo and then moved to Toronto to work as an accountant for the Asylum of the Insane in 1890. This appointment came from the provincial government and it would begin a stretch of 36 years of civil service for Loft. It was also in Toronto that he met Afa Northgate Gear, and the couple would marry in 1898. The couple would have three children together, one of whom died at a young age. It was in Toronto that Loft would begin to work as an Indigenous activist, 
bringing forward several proposals. At the time, Indigenous matters were of little importance to the people in Toronto, as there were no reserves near the city. In 1901, only 36 Indigenous were even registered in the city. It was also a place where discrimination against the Indigenous of Canada was rife. Goldwyn Smith, one of the leading intellectuals in the city, would say of the Indigenous, quote, The race, everyone says, is doomed. Little will be lost by humanity. End quote. His hope was to organize the First Nations of Ontario, suggesting that the Ojibwe and the Iroquois come together to join a new Indigenous organization. On October 9, 1896, he sent a letter to the Federal Deputy Superintendent General of Indian Affairs, Hayter Reed, stating that the Six Nations and the Mohawks were the foremost Indigenous in Canada, but they no longer attended Grand General Councils held by other Ontario Indigenous. As a result, he wanted to form a union of Indigenous. He would outline his proposal again in a letter he sent to the Toronto Globe that was published on November 7, 1896. His hope was to increase more autonomy for the Indigenous in Canada, but he was unsuccessful in his hope of creating this new organization. Nothing would come from this, but it was not for a lack of trying by Loft. As the 20th century dawned, Loft continued his work to promote the rights of the Indigenous. With a background as a journalist, he wrote several articles for the Toronto Globe and for Saturday Night. His first article called for the closing of residential schools, which he called, quote, veritable death traps, end quote. Instead of residential schools, he called for the creation of day schools for Indigenous children on reserves. At the time, Loft was far ahead of his time in calling for the closing of the schools. Sadly, his arguments fell on deaf ears, and residential schools would continue to operate well into the 20th century. Throughout his time in Toronto, Loft would make friends through his outgoing and friendly nature, counting ministers, heads of business, and lawyers as his friends. Sir Adam Beck, the head of Ontario Hydro, was such a close friend that his photo hung in the Loft home. He also knew David Boyle, the curator of the Ontario Provincial Museum, and Boyle called Loft, quote, a highly intelligent gentleman, of good appearance, good address, and good common sense, end quote. George Taylor Dennison, the senior police magistrate of Toronto, would describe his friend Loft as, quote, a respectable gentleman of fairly good education and much better qualified for the franchise than the 95% of those who have it, end quote. Tom Longboat, the legendary Indigenous runner who won the Boston Marathon and is considered one of the greatest long-distance runners in history, also counted Loft as a friend. Loft began to make a name for himself in many ways, including through the Masons, as a brilliant billiard player, and the music parties he hosted with his wife, where he sang and played the piano. Loft would often go to visit his mother at the Six Nation Reserve, especially following the death of his father in 1895. At this time, even though Loft enjoyed wide social acceptance, he was bothered with his low-ranking civil service position and his legal status as a ward of the Crown. On January 28, 1907, he wrote Sir Wilfrid Laurier regarding his position, saying, quote, The position I hold, which is only a clerkship, has never been to my way of thinking, a fitting recognition of what my labours meant. Worst of all, my salary has been very small. End quote. 
Loft was proud of his indigenous heritage, but in 1906 he applied to give up his status under the Indian Act and be recognized as an ordinary citizen. He felt that this was the best way for him to participate fully in the society. The Six Nations Council refused to endorse his application, though, and he withdrew it. He then decided that he would apply for a post as the superintendent of the Six Nations, the top federal job in the community. The council approved his request within a week, but the government declined to make the appointment. He would attempt again a decade later, with council's endorsement, but again it was declined. The family was able to live quite well, thankfully, due to his wife Afa's ability to buy and sell houses, rent rumors, and buy stock. In 1914, the First World War broke out, and Loft would encourage indigenous men to enlist. With his own family's background and its support of England during times of war, and his loyalist beliefs, he felt that it was the responsibility of everyone to support the British Empire. Loft himself would enlist, despite being over 50, and he would spend three years in active militia service in Toronto. In 1917, he was commissioned into a forestry company as lieutenant, thanks to his extensive experience in the lumber industry. As for how someone in their 50s was able to get into the militia and even the forestry service, Loft actually lied to recruiters telling them he was only 45. Considering that he never owned a car, walked everywhere and exercised every morning, he looked younger than his years. As a result of this, Loft was sent with the 256th Infantry Battalion of the Canadian Expeditionary Force and then the Canadian Forestry Corps in France. While in France, he fell in love with the country, writing home, quote, I have fallen in love with the country, its people and the language which I'm making every possible effort to familiarize by nightly study, end quote. While serving overseas, he also campaigned for Captain Frank Montour, an indigenous man from Ontario, to become the first indigenous person to receive the Victoria Cross. He would write a letter stating, quote, Anyone who knows Captain Frank Montour would not any sooner be aware of anything he may have done upon the battlefield to merit him the Victoria Cross, because he is a splendid type of the most unassuming and unpretentious. We at the Six Nations take great pride in extending sincere and most hearty congratulations to Captain Frank Montour and the Delaware, our cousins, in the bright accomplishments of a worthy son and warrior of the tribe, who by his conduct in war has brought distinction and honour, not only to his family and tribe, but alike to all of Britain's Indian allies. End quote. While overseas on August 7, 1917, Loft was awarded a Pine Tree Chiefmanship by the Six Nations Council. This was an incredible honour and only given to the most respected members of the Grand River Iroquois Confederacy. Because of this, on February 21, 1918, Loft would meet King George V at Buckingham Palace, representing the Six Nations Council. Before the war ended, Loft would begin to make plans for a new organisation he envisioned called the League of Indians, which would advocate for Indigenous rights in Canada. After the war ended, and with the poor treatment afforded to Indigenous veterans, who received smaller pensions and fewer benefits, he saw that this was an important cause a new organization could take up. In December of 1918, Loft would found the League of Indians of Canada at the Six Nations Reserve Council House. 
The Iroquois League, which had been founded around 1100 AD, was the inspiration for the organization. With its founding, it became the first pan-Indigenous political organization in Canadian history. On November 26, 1919, he sent out a letter to the Indigenous groups in Canada stating that First Nations needed to, quote, free themselves from the dominion of officialdom, end quote. At first, while he did receive some support from Indigenous leaders, Loft found that he was mostly alone in keeping the organization running. This included using his own money from his job to run the organization. At first, he was the president and the secretary-treasurer, and the first meeting of the League was held in Sault Ste. Marie in 1919, followed by meetings in Elphinstone, Manitoba in 1920, Thunderchild Reserve, Saskatchewan in 1921, and Hopima, Alberta in 1922. With this new organization, even in its early stages, Loft began to petition Indian Affairs to speak to the Canadian Parliament, but he was refused each time. The Deputy Superintendent of the Department of Indian Affairs from 1913 to 1932, Duncan Campbell Scott, did not like Loft and saw him as a dangerous radical. In his role as the highest-ranking cabinet minister that focused on Indigenous issues, he spent time undermining the work of Loft and the League of Indians. At one point, Scott would attempt to have Loft's Indian status removed, but this would fail. He also attempted to pursue criminal charges against Loft for his attempt to raise money for land claim issues. Despite his constant campaigning to Indigenous groups, often at his own expense, he continued to have little in the way of success. That being said, in 1929, the League of Indians in Western Canada was formed, holding meetings in Saddle Lake, Alberta in 1931 and 1932, Duffield, Alberta in 1933 and in 1935, and near Edmonton in 1934. As a result of the lack of progress with the government, the League of Indians became defunct in the early 1930s. As John L. Taylor of York University would say, quote, F.O. Loft was undoubtedly a man born before his time. His resources were insufficient to sustain and enlarge the organization he envisioned. He was nearly 60 when he began, and he had to maintain full-time employment to support his family. In any case, one person could not have done all that was required. Despite the collapse of the League, Loft would continue to work for Indigenous rights. On November 17, 1932, he was reported in the Toronto Daily Star saying that the jailing of Indigenous for poaching under provincial game laws was contrary to their rights under the British North America Act. In 1926, Loft had retired from public service and he moved to Chicago to take care of his ailing wife, who was in her hometown. Even in Chicago, he still worked for Indigenous rights in Canada, and he would eventually come back to Toronto in 1930. The strain of the organization and the battle with the government took its toll on Loft, and he would pass away in 1934. While Loft may not have known it at the time, his work as an advocate for the indigenous would yield results after his death. The League of Indians is now considered to be the forerunner of several other nationwide indigenous political organizations. In 1968, the National Indian Brotherhood was formed on the same principles as the League of Nations, and in 1982, it was succeeded by the current Assembly of First Nations. In 2020, 
Fred Loft was on the short list of people to appear on the new $5 bill. I hope you enjoyed that episode of my look at Fred Loft. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy McCallum, Diane Wade, Laurieanne Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Pamela Elder, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Information comes from Biography, Canadian Encyclopedia, Parks Canada, Wikipedia, DoingOurBit.ca, Peoples of Alberta, Toronto.com, and Sacom.ca. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.